What happens when you put two experts behind mics to match wits on the current state of financial services, the economy, investments, and more? From the American College of Financial Services, this is Wealth Managed. Welcome to today's episode of the Wealth Managed podcast. I'm Michael Finca. I'm a professor of wealth management at the American College of Financial Services. And I'm David Blanchett. I'm head of retirement research for Morningstar and an adjunct professor of wealth management at the American College of Financial Services. Hey, David, what's what's your favorite stock pick today? <laughs> you know, there's so many to pick from. I don't know where to start. Um, I hear Tesla's on fire, right? Like, how many advisors do you think get asked that question all the time? And what do you think they say when they get that question? Or what should they say? So this is a big problem because that's what a lot of people think advisors are supposed to know, that they're supposed to know whether Apple is a good investment or whether Tesla is is a good stock or whether they should be putting money in Bitcoin. What's the problem with that? And is there a problem with that? There's different perspectives right on buying individual stocks. Like, I don't think that people should do it with their portfolio. I mean, my brother-in-law, he has a Robinhood account. He's all about it, but he doesn't do it with, with most of his money. It's just a small little sliver. I just think it's, it's, it's not a diversified portfolio. It's not a real strategy to buy individual stocks. It, it's hard to, to track them and trade them. I mean, you know, I think that as a profession, we've kind of evolved away from picking stocks to building portfolios. You know, from my perspective, you know, it, it can be a fun activity, but it's not, it's not a way to build wealth. I mean, what, what do you think? Well, you're such a buzzkill, David. You know, it's, it's way <laughs> yeah, more, yeah. When, how are you ever going to make a ton of money unless you're investing in a highly undiversified instrument? So there was a great study that was done recently on Robinhood investors. And that study showed exactly what all the prior research has shown. And that is that people who are trading in individual stocks consistently underperform the market. So it looks like traders in Robinhood are chasing after whatever went up yesterday, the hot stocks. That seems to be a relatively common phenomenon. Those are the kind of stocks that will show up in the news. They'll be on those those TV programs that you watch where people, the experts talk about individual stocks to invest in. We've had this conversation about experts and, and how wonderfully predictive they are. But does it make sense? And you know, we, we've criticized in the past people who position themselves as financial advisors who then go out into the world and start making recommendations about individual stocks because it's kind of training people to think a way that's not the way that most financial advisors want them to think about investing in stocks. I mean, I remember when I was sort of in this industry 20 years ago, I mean, the term stockbroker was synonymous for financial advisor, right? That's what people used to call advisors. I think that as a profession, we've evolved. And I know that, that some advisors do build individual stock portfolios. And I think that can be okay. I think that the message still needs to be though, it's about long-term investing, right? I, when people buy stocks, they're buying for positive skewness. They want to buy like the next Apple when it's worth a dollar and it goes up to a thousand. Wait, 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 wait. You said a term that I have no idea what you're talking about. What is what is positive skewness? Oh, what is positive skewness. So positive skewness. So think about like a, a bell curve distribution, right? So some stocks go down 50%. Some stocks go up 3000%. People that, that trade are honestly usually trading because they want to be the person that buys that stock that's going to go up 3,000%. So they are on average losing money in the hopes that they can tell all their friends they bought Apple when it was a dollar, right? It's kind of like doing the lottery. The lottery, does you lose money on average, but someone someone gets that, that it gets the win and they get that positive skewness. 
that's what investors, I think, that buy stocks are looking for. The problem is, right, is that it's it's wealth destructive. I mean, you know, even 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 though commissions on stock trades have gone to zero for most platforms, there's still the bid ask spread. Every time you trade a stock, you lose a little bit of money, and that's going to add up over time. What you mean that I'm not that good at actually picking the best stock? Well, Michael, I'm, you are. I, you I, can I, do it. You're I can give anomaly. you lots of examples of stocks that I've invested in that have killed it. So I must be a genius. Well, it's funny because people remember their winners and they forget their losers, right? They don't think about how it all comes together, the money they put, like they forget their contributions. But I, I mean, you mentioned the Robinhood study. Like I really haven't seen any really good study ever that shows that the average person actually makes more money actively trading stocks than that they just use to buy and hold portfolio. And that actually is true, not just among individual traders on Robinhood, but also among professional traders in mutual funds that are more active, right? Right. I think it's okay if you're an advisor and you do use kind of a core holding of say 30 or 40 stocks for the large cap exposure. You can do, you know, tax loss harvesting, you can do things that make sense. But but the idea that is not, I'm going to tactically beat the market. It's a different way to get maybe a low or lower cost exposure to a given, you know, factor asset class that's more about diversification than, than picking the next apple. You know, that's a great point, David. And I think it's probably the one argument for holding individual stocks. And that is that you can engage in tax loss harvesting types of strategies. What's your opinion on the value of holding individual stocks so that you can engage in tax loss harvesting versus holding mainly ETFs and mutual funds? A second benefit is purely behavioral. You know, if you're if you're at a cocktail party, it's super boring to talk about how you have a portfolio of ETFs. I think that, that some people might like to be able to say like, yeah, I, I've got a little Tesla, I got a little Apple. You know, it helps them be more so what, what they're owning as part of their portfolio. But yeah, I mean, I think you can add a little bit of value through tax loss harvesting. In the, overall, though, I'm I'm just not convinced there's really that much there versus owning a diversified portfolio of ETFs. Do you agree, disagree? No, I tend to agree with you that the, you know, there's lots of research on the actual value of tax loss harvesting. And a lot of it depends on different factors like the volatility of the stocks and the likelihood that they're actually gonna go down in price over a given year. It's hard to tax loss harvest when you're not losing. But I think that for most average investors, the best strategy is mutual funds or ETFs and, you know, ETFs in your taxable accounts and, you know, mutual funds or ETFs in your tax sheltered accounts. That's boring though, as you mentioned. And I think we fight this a lot in this profession that we have to focus clients on the real value that we're providing by building a wealth diversified portfolio and that we're not financial experts. That, you know, what do you think about people who go out there on TV and pretend that they know which direction Tesla is headed. Uh, Because we know from the historical data that those experts are not very good. So what does it say when you as a financial advisor are actually holding yourself out there as an expert on investing? Maybe I'll push back a little bit. And I'm like, first, like that's that's the origin of our profession, right? So we began as a profession with individuals largely selling the idea about performance. But, but two, like that's a lot of people's value proposition. I mean, if you're going to do financial planning, you've got to have expertise in giving advice and helping people accomplish their goals. A lot of advisors don't have that. And so, you know, like their story, I think, to the masses is I build really good portfolios. Now, to your point, do they know 
But if they can tell a good story that's convincing to people, that helps them sell. And so I think part of it is just that, you know, we have this roots of a profession that are more kind of salesy around our performance. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think you, you and I would agree that the best strategies are ones that are boring because that's what builds the most wealth over the long haul. Now, you know, one spot you maybe could earn or, or own individual stocks is employer stocks in a 401k plan. What are your thoughts on that? Well, obviously, it's a wonderful idea. You, you should have as much as possible in your employer stock, especially if you work for Enron. Let's take a break for a moment. Deliver financial planning for every person and every need through our chartered financial consultant education program. Find the tools and skills you need at theamericancollege.edu slash chfc. The American College of Financial Services proudly supports the next generation of financial professionals and leaders. I'm Ross Riskin, head of the college's next-gen advisory task force. And if you're looking for important and timely knowledge on financial planning, career building, networking, and more for next-gen advisors and those working with next-gen clients, then tune into our Next Gen in 10 podcast. Subscribe and listen to all our episodes at theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation. There's been a lot of recent legislation to address that to make sure that employees don't overweight their employer stock. That's a big problem, of course, not just because your portfolio is undiversified, but because your human capital, your earnings are tied up in that company as well. Yeah, it's funny, you know, we've had we've had a lot of discussions about owning employer stock in a 401k. You know, the 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 purely finance analytical answer is that you should own zero, right? You don't want to, you know, you've already got, you know, risk via your human capital exposed to employer stock. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to cut in and say you're wrong. Okay. I'm going to say that if you were really going to do it right, you would have negative ownership of your employer (laughs) stock. You would be buying options that would pay off if that stock did poorly, right? So I don't disagree. You should be, you should technically be shorting your employer stock, but I'm not sure how well that would go over with the HR office. (laughs) Yeah, I'm coming up with these great ideas for a business model, the new new securities that allow you to short your employer stock. So what I was going to get onto next though, is so, you know, I've, I've met with very large employers and we, we have our position when it comes to robo advice and 401ks is we sell down your entire employer stock holding. That's it, okay? How do you think the, the CFO and you know the people responsible for running a retirement plan feel when you tell them that's your recommendation in your robo-advice tool? I'm, th- I'm sure they're gonna be thrilled, especially since their bonus is based on the stock price. Right, so usually you get some pushback. And so I think that the only kind of reason, you know, there, there is this thing called net unrealized appreciation. I'm not gonna talk about that right now. I think, the, I think there, there maybe is a slight behavioral benefit to having some where if if the market goes up a ton, you don't want to feel like ah, I sold everything. But but I mean, at the end of the day, it doesn't make any, almost any sense to your point to own employer stock because it's just it's just too risky. It's a single stock. It's tied to your human capital. Just avoid it as much as you possibly can. David, there's one more topic I want to address before we stop our conversation about investing in individual stocks, and that is that a lot of business school students are brainwashed to believe that investing in individual stocks is what they should be doing as an investor. I mean, we're asking these students who take a undergraduate class in investing 
to compete against other students in the class to see who can have the best performance in their individual stock performance over the course of the semester and who wins those competitions, David? Who takes on the most risk? And so it's funny, I was actually in one of those competitions in, in college and I actually had already done, I, I knew a decent amount of investing at the time. So I actually bought futures in my stock account because to your point, it's like either your first or your last. And so I just kept leveraging up my portfolio to get, because if I didn't get first place, it didn't really matter. But I think to your point, you know, I, it's okay to teach people to, 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 to buy stocks and understand what they are. But I think it, we're seeing a message like that everyone should be stock pickers and that, that really worries me, right? I think, I think without the right context for the value of what the activity is, it almost encourages people to go out on Robinhood and start actively trading whatever savings they've got. So probably not the best idea, all things considered. It seems like a bit of a disconnect because we're training all these people in PhD programs in finance that a well-diversified portfolio is the most efficient type of portfolio. And then they go and teach these MBA classes where they have to do these stock track things, which are basically teaching the exact opposite idea to the students. I mean, it doesn't, I've never understood why people do that who are, who should know better, I think. To me, part of this is behavioral. It's like when my, when my brother-in-law told me he was in a Robinhood account, I was like, buddy, do it, but just do it with a small portion of your money. And, you know, I think he knows he's going to lose a little bit of money, but my hope with him and it is that it gets him more excited about the idea of investing, saving, and, and just learning about what it means to be an investor. So you've got to kind of take your lump somewhere. Ideally, it's not with your entire portfolio. It's just part of it. But I think there, there are benefits there as long as you have the right context with respect to what are the odds of you actually coming out ahead if you do own and buy individual stocks. You're such cynics. Yes. I'm now a producer and I have this question. I want to participate in the idealism of American capitalism. I want to be a part of a company, a solar firm that's going to re-energize our entire energy system because I believe in the company. You guys are just, oh, just diversify, have no sense of belief in anything good. It's the American dream to be a part of something that grows because I put my two cents in. Is there any value in me as an investor to commit to a company because I believe in them? Or am I just being a fool? We're kind of talking about two different things. Like you're talking about how your value should affect your portfolio. And you can do that through lots of different ways. So, you know, if you like solar, you know, and you like companies that do social good, you can tilt your portfolio towards companies that do that. But I still wouldn't go out and buy individual companies that do that. So yes, you can have a portfolio that reflects your values. When it comes to buying individual stocks, I just still get really nervous because it's not diversified. So I think the bottom line is you want to try to encourage clients and investors in general to be thinking in terms of well-diversified instruments and then goal-based investing as opposed to selecting individual securities. But there is this tendency for people to want to have fun investing. And should you take away all their fun? Maybe not necessarily. So this idea of a core and satellite portfolio approach in which the core of the portfolio, maybe 80 or 90% of it is in well-diversified instruments and they get to play with 10% of it. That seems like a rational way to deal with the irrationality that most of us can't throw off. Right. It's, again, to reiterate, it's a, it's a rational solution to an irrational problem that people have when it comes to investing. Which is basically what financial advising is all about. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast. I'm Michael Finca. 
I'm David Lanchett. And we'll see you next time. See y'all. For more episodes and shows, visit theamericancollege.edu slash podcasts. Wealth Managed is a production of the American College of Financial Services. 